Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Kerwin, and on today's episode, I have Dr. Jofia Clemens. Dr. Clemens is a neurobiologist and clinical researcher specializing in nutrition, nutritional therapy, and neurology. She is a specialist in the Paleolithic Ketogenic Physiology, and she is the head of the Paleomedicina Research Group in Hungary, which has been using the Paleolithic Ketogenic Diet exclusively since 2013 to help patients with a variety of conditions. Sophia, thank you so much for coming on to the episode for today. Hello, Gary. Thank you very much for inviting me. No problems. Well, you're a unique guest because I've spoken to a lot of people who are adopting a carnivore diet, an all-meat diet, for a variety of reasons. And in Hungary, you're actually researching this. You're doing clinical research, you're running a clinic, you're seeing patients with a variety of conditions. So you're just going to be full of great information that <laughs> I'm going to ask a lot of different questions, hopefully, just to tie in some of the frequently asked questions and the concerns that people might have around eating just meat in a diet. So I'm so excited to get you on. <laughs> okay, no problem. Just ask any questions you have. <laughs> sure. So my first question then would be, is because um, the as I mentioned in the introduction, you specialize in the paleolithic ketogenic diet. Could you just define to people what is a paleolithic ketogenic diet? Mm -hmm. uh, so I can give you a short uh, background, a long background, but uh, keep things short. It is uh, it is just an animal meat based fat diet. In short, and and uh, we use uh, this combined term, the paleolithic ketogenic diet, because we uh, really like to refer to those persons who came before us and have been pioneers in this field and uh, and, and and to their thoughts, because this concept uh, doesn't come out of nowhere. It has its uh, roots uh, roots in the paleolithic uh, diet and uh, is designated by persons like uh, Walter Boerklin, who himself was a practicing uh, physician, uh, not just a theoretician, Lauren Corden, and on the other side, uh, Russell Wilder, uh, Freeman, and, and many more. So these, uh, these people have laid down the foundations of this diet and, and we build on their findings, observations, and results. And, and what is new um, is, is that we are um, really go into the the practice we, we use this diet in treating um, even severe diseases, which was not the case uh, for the, those people who lay down the foundations or not um, that or didn't cover all the diseases. Mm -hmm. And that's. Um... What I, I find interesting with this too, because could could another way of someone describing the diet be called a keto carnivore diet? Because the carnivore diet's quite a a good term at the moment. I think a lot of people understand that term, an all meat diet. Would you say that the Paleolithic diet is then a version is sort of a ketogenic carnivore diet? Is that an easier way for some people to to visualize it? Uh, yes, we can also call this diet in, in this way. But uh, then uh, um, we have to see clearly some some other facts which is not uh, seen or handled clearly in, within a carnivorous society. 
for example, uh, excluding or including milk and dairy because uh, there is no uh, clear distinction in this regard. For example, there is no uh, no exact advice for the uh, fat protein ratio uh, in the carnivore society, but it, it is actually a big issue. There is no emphasis on uh, including or incorporating uh, organ meats uh, as an important um, part of the diet, and um, at, at least uh, we are we are. Uh, Actually, myself, I'm not a carnivore. I've never taken down any animal. So, behaviorally, yeah, I'm not a carnivore. I, I am, I'm uh, buying uh, meat uh, from a butcher. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, actually, I'm originally, I, I've been also uh, working in the ethological field. And <laughs> so, for this reason, I, I have some problem with the word carnivore. Because <laughs> the lion is a carnivore, but the man is not a carnivore. At least the modern man is not a carnivore. It is a meat eater. Okay. Well, uh, you know, thanks for the clarification on that because that's that's why I want to get you on because I, was, I sort of want to ask a lot of these questions that some people will be having. And so, as you said already, it sounds like the that issue that you were saying about the organ meats or dairy, those are some frequently asked questions that I see in the carnivore groups. And this is where the paleolithic ketogenic diet is different because you do answer those questions yes or no uh, and the macros so the the paleolithic ketogenic diet uh, in short pkd also accrue, ex, uh, excludes those food components that are excluded by the paleolithic the regular paleolithic diet and, and the number one is the milk and the diary and and there is a lot of research and reasoning why milk and diary should be excluded I do not know whether I should go uh, into that, but they are excluded because uh, ancient humans uh, never ate milk and dairy. Okay, so so, they were surrounded by wild animals and not domesticated animals. So when we're talking about the milk and dairy here, so even things like cheeses, um, milk, even from say not just cows but goats, for example, you're saying that's all excluded. Uh, yes, uh, and, and you should uh, especially exclude these uh, food components if you are um, suffering uh, from an autoimmune disease or cancer. So some of the autoimmune diseases uh, are boosted by the previous consumption of uh, milk protein. So there is lots of research that, for example, type 1 diabetes is, is linked to overconsumption of milk or sometimes specifically milk protein. Uh, which is also included in the classical ketogenic diet. So this is one difference uh, that uh, m- that makes a difference between the paleolithic and the classical ketogenic diet is that classical ketogenic diet also includes uh, milk also for um, for the fat component because there is this long-standing fear of animal fat and especially in the U.S. Uh, where the also, the ketogenic diet started, and they have been using uh, Mika diary. But actually, some patients, some epilepsy patients who have been treated with a classical ketogenic diet, uh, develop type one diabetes as an additional disease, and, and this is likely because of the overconsumption of milk. We also had a type one diabetes patient who just uh, developed um, type one diabetes after the consumption of of milk protein for um, building muscles. 
So there is um, so much against uh, eating dairy and milk. And uh, it is also boosting the tumorigenesis, the milk protein, because the, the, the milk protein and the milk itself evolutionary, um, one, one of the roles of the milk is to uh, promote tissue growth so that the small animal grow to a large animal. And this is something you, you shouldn't uh, consume after, uh, after three or four years old. Wow. So it, it is not just uh, it is not just about the, the lactose or lactose uh, resistance. It is it is uh, more related to the, the milk protein, which are many. Yeah. <laughs> so there is uh, factors, insulin like growth factor, which is a milk protein, and and also boosting uh, tumorigenesis. Wow. So, I mean, that's fascinating. I've, I haven't um, listened to anyone talking about the link between dairy products and type 1 diabetes, dairy products and the promotion of more cancers, um, the side effect that someone could be going on a ketogenic diet who's never had any of these conditions and actually develops these conditions because of the way that they're eating a ketogenic diet. That's, uh, wow, that, that is big news. Um, and you and are you seeing this then in patients or uh, is this something that you've done because you've done a lot of clinical research studies too um is this something that's come out in the research that you've done uh, both ways uh, we have um, much data from the literature so for example specific cancers are uh, specifically related uh, to milk or like uh, breast cancer in women the, the number one I think the number one uh, killer or or in the prostate cancer, these are specifically related to because they are sensitive uh, to the milk protein, to the effect uh, that is uh, coming from the milk protein. And uh, yes, with some or, or um, development of, uh, of a myoma. Um, and, and we see this uh, reflect, reflected in the, the history of the patients. So hmm. there, there is a quite clear connection. Okay, so it's so your tip already to people would be who might be looking to adopt a ketogenic diet for cancer purposes. You know, to either stop the the risk of getting a cancer, or they've they are already at that stage and they have a cancer. You would say that just be aware that then so it depending on the kinds of cancer that you have that maybe dairy is is not a good option at all or would you say that all cancers then you just wouldn't even risk having dairy on a ketogenic diet you'd you'd do the paleolithic version without any dairy uh, it is the best to exclude it as, as, as a whole okay group. all right and so even then if someone's on a ketogenic diet just for general weight loss, that's another thing I'm hearing here that dairy, because a lot of people are eating dairy like butter or cheeses to get that fat content up, That's you're saying that's not the ideal way to get your fat content up on a ketogenic diet? Yes, it, it is not an idea because uh, if we are speaking from an evolutionary perspective, and this is what we are doing as well, so the, the fat should be coming from um, animal fat. Okay. Okay. The fat of uh, four-legged animals, and, and and not from diary and other diary products. 
So, but if and that's disease, disease only comes next, but there are early uh, side effects. And so, the ketogenic diet is is not as safe as uh, it is perceived by the layman, or or even in these carnivore groups. So, actually, I have seen many patients on the classical ketogenic diets. I, I I've also seen the transitions between diets. And, and I can tell you that all patients on the classical ketogenic diet uh, developed some uh, side effects like magnesium deficiency, uh, iron deficiency, anemia, um, and, and so on. There are many. And, and there are deadly side effects as well. <laughs> so, for example, the, the developing a, a pneumonia, which is um, which is a consequence, which is uh, secondary to upper respiratory tract infection, is is a number one uh, side effect. And this is not a disease. This is just a complication from eating uh, less than optimal. Okay. So, and when we're talking here about the classical ketogenic diet, this is sort of the diet that researchers have used to help children who have epilepsy or seizures. So they're on that, I think, an 80-20 kind of ratio. Um, is that it versus maybe what a lot of people are eating out there, which is a modified ketogenic diet or modified Atkins diet? Do you see the same issues in that in that regard when people are eating more of a modified Atkins version of the ketogenic diet? that they're still putting themselves at risk of, I, I didn't even realize, like pneumonia from upper respiratory tract infections? Yes, actually the, the risks are, are the same. So there, there is much data uh, from Eric Kosov, who is running a clinic uh, on, on an epilepsy clinic treated by the classical ketogenic diet. And he has just uh, beautifully documented uh, the effectiveness of the diet as well, as well as the side effects. And uh, actually, there is n not much difference uh, between these uh, types of diets, and, and the side effects are, are the same as well, because the diet components are the same as well. So they are using the classical ketogenic diet, the low glycemic index diet, uh, the modified Atkins diet. They, they try to find the balance between the efficacy of the diet and um, how a patient can cope with the diet trying to be less strict and, and, and looking at the differences. But uh, the, the food components are the same. And, and the, the, all of these diets are based on, on milk and dairy, uh, like um, heavy cream, for example, which is a number one, or vegetable oils or coconut oil. And, and this is the major problem with all these types of diets. And the side effects are the same and the effectivity is the same and and it, it is also much lower than most people think did you know that only one uh, child in 10 uh, gets recovered on the classical ketogenic diet entirely and the nine does not uh, become seizure free so effectivity is always relative yeah that's very yeah so you're saying that only 10 percent so one out of or well, less than that one of uh, one yeah one out of 10 children is going to truly benefit from a ketogenic diet to reduce their seizures? Um, no, there are other ones who benefit. The 10% is for those who become completely seizure-free, so having no epileptic seizures anymore. Mm. And 50% who uh, continue to have uh, only half of their seizures than they had before. 
which is an achievement because this, this is much better than can be achieved with a single anti-epileptic drug uh, with the expense of as well much less side effects. But I think having um, just a half of the amount of your seizures does not uh, ensures a better quality of life because you can have an epileptic seizures anytime. Mm-hmm. So what are you finding different than when you put a child who is having lots of seizures on a more paleolithic ketogenic diet? Are you finding there's a different success ratio, less complications, less side effects? Yes, if you put them on a PKD uh, diet, uh, they uh, almost always get entirely seizure-free. I, I only remember only one case uh, uh, achieving no seizure freedom. Wow, that's uh, so your success rate then is substantially high, is what you're saying? Yes, it, it, it is. The, the diet, actually not our success rate, it is <laughs> the success rate of the diet. Also because, uh, you know, not all patients adhere uh, to the highest level <laughs> to the diet, mm. but that's quite another story. And another thing then when it comes to seizures, um, I got to interview Emma Williams with Matthew's friends in the UK about, because um, they uh, are a, a group that help promote the ketogenic diet for seizure control in children. And she was telling me that children who are put on the classical ketogenic diet, they do it maybe only for a period of time and then they t- they come off it and then they go on to, you know, they, they're they not so so hot. Um, heavy into the ketogenic diet so it's used as like a short-term therapeutic diet with children then who are on a pkd diet is this something then that is more sustainable too that they can be on this for much longer and not just have to have as a short intervention yes this is something they can sustain for their entire lives and also should follow their entire lives Yes, the, the ketogenic diet, the classical, is should be time limited because after a certain amount of time, the the negative effects dominate, like the the decrease in, in bone quality, uh, decrease uh, in in, uh, in 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 growing in children. So they are usually smaller than the than the other children of the same age, and uh, they have to catch up. Okay. But this is again not because of the ketosis itself, as as many people claim. So this is not uh, the effect of the ketosis, but the effect of the unhealthy uh, composition of the diet. Okay, so it's not the ketone issue. It's it's the ingredients that are part of the diet. That's a, more of an issue here. Yes, actually, the non-periodic uh, parts of the diet. Yeah, and because. Then I guess you have an issue with medium chain triglyceride oils or MCT oils. Are they, do they cause nutritional issues in people who consume a lot of MCT oil? Yeah, so the MCT oil is, is a plant oil and as such uh, are all detrimental. So they are causing uh, gastrointestinal issues, they are causing uh, diarrhea uh, or, or constipation, uh, gastrointestinal pain. Uh, they are also increasing uh, inflammation level, so the blood inflammatory factors are incre- increased. And uh, so th- those patients who rely on, uh, on coconut oil or NCT oil will not uh, achieve seizure freedom. 
And I'm also thinking then for people who are listening who might be adults who aren't dealing with any neurological conditions like epilepsy, but they're adopting a ketogenic way of living just for the ketosis component. Um, do you think then someone who is putting MCT into their drinks or putting it on their salads or food that they could be causing any nutritional issues in, in the, over the long term? Yes, nutritional issues as well. So the coconut oil uh, doesn't contain anything uh, which is uh, nutritionally valuable as compared to lard, for example. Uh, and, and, and the other way around, those uh, who are eating coconut oil or any type of vegetable oil um, start to develop um, increased fatigue, for example. So in, instead of uh, benefiting from ketosis, they are still in ketosis, but they complain of uh, being tired all the time. So the, it, it is also hindering the, the physical activity in those um, who are using it for improving, enhancing sports performance. And, and we also see that it is decreasing the, the thyroid function as well. So that's why it makes people uh, feeling more tired. Okay, so that's interesting because, uh, yeah, uh, you see that quite often, especially it seems in the female population that the thyroid issue keeps, the question comes up about yes. about that. And so you're saying there's a link here between adopting an incorrect, what you believe, an incorrect version of the ketogenic diet and actually um, affecting your th your thyroid hormone production. Yes. Um, so uh, any diet which is containing uh, vegetable oils or oil seeds, which are actually containing these um, vegetable oils, plant oils, um, which are different from the animal-derived oils, um, are at risk at uh, developing uh, thyroid disease, uh, Hashimoto's uh, autoimmune type of uh, thyroid disease. But of course, not from one day to another, it takes a longer time. Mm -hmm. But this has also occurred, we have seen many cases uh, occurring on the on the regular paleolithic diet. In Hungary, um, the, the situation was uh, the following. We, we had a paleolithic diet from 2010, 11, it was extremely uh, popular. And many people started to do the paleolithic diet to achieve uh, health benefits. But instead of uh, achieving benefits or beside achieving some benefits, they have uh, developed uh, thyroid issues. And this was especially true for, for women. Mm -hmm. And it takes a few years. <laughs> Yeah. And so what, what do you believe is causing that then? Because you mentioned, so are you looking at more of an autoimmune issue that's attacking the thyroid gland that's causing this problem? Uh, yes, actually. So that there, are, um, there are other type of uh, relationship uh, which uh, goes for the so vegetable oils instead of animal oils, uh, decreasing the thyroid function. Um, and, and there is another one, a general uh, autoimmune effect. So anything is uh, anything outside uh, meat, fat, egg, and organ meat uh, has the potential to increase the intestinal permeability. And if you have an intestinal permeability increase, uh, you are more prone to develop uh, any autoimmune disease. And what autoimmune disease? 
you will develop will uh, depend on what uh, food components <laughs> dominate in your diet. So as I told you, for example, milk is associated with certain uh, autoimmune diseases like type 1 diabetes. There is a specific um, there is a specific uh, attachment of the milk protein, for example, to another uh, surface uh, protein of the type of, of the of the pancreas. So I only want to say that uh, this is the this is the root of all this is the common root of all autoimmune diseases, the increased intestinal permeability, and there is no way to reverse the increased intestinal permeability other than the PKD. I, I know it may sound quite weird because if you look at the internet, you can find many solutions, but actually they, they do not work in, in, in patients. And this is, uh, I, I'm um, quite confident to say this because uh, we have been measuring intestinal permeability for the last two, three years. And, and we have measurements uh, before, after, for before, after uh, comparisons. And also for uh, patients or healthy persons following different types of diets. So yeah, because your clinic, um, as you said, you you measure intestinal permeability. So you do that on all patients who come through. Um, is that just a stool sample that you do to see that, or do you have to actually do an internal examination and take a biopsy? Like how does an in, how does that um, test actually work? Yes, uh, we, we do not measure it in all patients, which is it is quite expensive, um, relatively. <laughs> but uh, we we, uh, we are doing it uh, when we can. It is a laboratory measurement. It is uh, it is be, it is a urinary measurement. So there is a a kind of solution. Uh, the name is PEC four hundred. You can you can find uh, the basics in the literature. So there has been many. Experiments with uh, this um, with this tool with this measurement in the 80s, the 90s, but um, later on it uh, went to the background because nobody knew how to normalize the intestinal permeability, and and we just uh, resurrected this uh, measurement and, and and start doing it. So we have to we have to develop the whole methodology which is behind. It, it is uh, it is a laboratory, a laboratory background. What we need, um, uh, high performance liquid chromatography, <laughs> which is as well quite uh, expensive and uh, specific uh, tool. So we need a, a laboratory. We need a chemist or more who are backing this measurement. So it is it is really laboratory dependent. But the measurement itself is, is very simple. You just have to drink uh, this solution and collect your urine across six hours. And the excretion rate of this uh, molecule in the urine uh, and the relative ratio, uh, there are different sizes of this molecule, the excretion rate uh, will say your intestinal permeability. Oh, that's fascinating. So, yeah, because, you know, I'm thinking gut and so I'm thinking stool, but we're talking that you ingest a liquid and then through your urine, you can actually see these markers to, to test the, the permeability of the gut lining. Yes, because not normally it is a molecule that uh, doesn't get absorbed because uh, normally the intestine is uh, serving as a barrier 
to certain molecules and only absorb certain molecules, but not others. And normally, this is a non-absorbable molecule. And if it is absorbed, it is indicating that the that the gut is leaky. Ah, that's fascinating. Okay, so it's, yeah, I can imagine it's like thinking that you've got this pipe and there's there's some holes in it, and if the hole's big enough, then this molecule from the liquid passes into the into this into your system, and then your kidneys are trying to excrete it, and you can pick it up and go, yeah, there's there's a problem in your gut lining. Yes, exactly. These holes are only microscopic, not in the microscopic <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You hope you don't have big holes in your gut. That's a bigger problem you've got in life. <laughs> yeah. Yes, but actually, anybody who is on a Western type diet has a higher intestinal permeability than should. Okay. Is and this linked? To- okay. Yes? And is this is this linked into the world of gluten free um, kind of foods and gluten sensitivities? And where I believe I've forgotten the researcher's name, but he, I think he found zonulin was was a part of this. Yes. Are we are we looking in the same situation here? Uh, yes, uh, the zonulin is also used as a marker of uh, the intestinal permeability, but it is, it is just a marker and not a measurement because uh, you measure it from the blood and uh, actually does not uh, measure uh, the, the barrier function, the actual barrier function of your gut. So uh, it is just um, correlated with the amount of permeability and not just intestinal permeability but uh, generally the, it is indicating the membrane permeability in general and not just the intestinal permeability and, and this is an important issue because there are there are other barriers uh, within our body uh, not just the intestinal barrier so for example there's a membrane uh, within our mouth or nose or in even the vagina or the placenta, these are functioning as barriers. Or, or the most important one is the blood-brain barrier. And and these barriers also uh, got uh, leaky with time. Okay. So, and again, that's from, so even our blood-brain barrier um, could become affected by what we're eating and that's then linking to conditions as basic as brain fog but then potentially even more serious conditions i'm guessing down the line um, yes the, the the brain fog may have other uh, causes but uh, this is the way so first the intestinal permeability develops and later on uh, with the time uh, the intestinal the permeability of other membranes uh, got uh, compromised and with time, this condition can give rise to autoimmune diseases, and it may take uh, months, years, or decades. Mm-hmm. But this is the way how it happens. Okay. And the gluten is is only one of those compounds that in either increase uh, the intestinal permeability, or once it gets through the circulation through the holes of the the, the intestine, and um, uh, and then um, give rise to uh, a neurological autoimmune disease. But if you only exclude uh, gluten, there are so many other components in your diet which can still uh, maintain the, the whole process. And that's why excluding uh, gluten only will not will not help, for example, in type 1 diabetes. Okay. And, and th- autoimmune diseases. And this is where you are talking uh, about also with the Paleolithic 
ketogenic diet, the PKD, what you've adapted from the paleo side of the diet where they would maybe avoid gluten but still have lots of nuts and other plant-based foods and you're saying that if the permeability is compromised that you want to just exclude all of those food types too. Yes, that are hindering the normalization of the liquid gut. Okay. And um, yeah, I mean, that's so what we're, we're talking about, it sounds to me that the basis of the diet is trying to make sure that your gut lining is secure so that you don't stimulate an autoimmune reaction, which then can attack multiple systems in your body and cause multiple symptoms and conditions. Um, I'd be interested too, because colostrum is used as a treatment for irritable gut, but colostrum is dairy derived. So how would you sort of explain how someone could take a colostrum supplement to help with uh, gut issues and maybe get a benefit, but you're saying that the dairy or the colostrum in this case should cause an issue. Uh, I don't think that the colostrum is a, is a good solution to these problems. Uh, I have seen one study where colostrum was used to, they looked at the effect on the intestinal permeability and uh, it it uh, it seemed uh, to be um, beneficial to some extent, but that study um, was methodologically uh, not that good. So uh, me as a scientist uh, would be able to uh, attack this uh, study based on uh, some methodological issues. They, for example, they didn't use the PEC 400 measurement, which is the most reliable measure measurement of the of the intestinal permeability. But uh, used uh, an, another compound, which or another test, which is used the uh, lactulose monitor test, which is a, a much more uh, widespread test for testing intestinal permeability. It is also used by the mainstream uh, healthcare, or had been used, not so much anymore. But in the past, they had been using it, and um, there are many problems. So the, the results are not that reliable because these molecules are actually sugar molecules and interfere with what you are eating, interfere uh, in, in your blood, in your tissues. So, and, and, But most importantly, I've never seen that, or the, there is no study in the literature showing that uh, colostrum, uh, taking colostrum would uh, reverse any serious uh, disease. Okay. And so just I'm thinking here where I've had people um, already on the show. Um, I've had Michaela Peterson, um, Amber Hearn, Kelly Hogan, Dr. Sean Baker. And um, especially I'd say more with Michaela because she has an autoimmune condition where the juvenile rheumatoid arthritis or potentially a seronegative arthritis. But so her body is attacking itself. And it sounded like going on a carnivore diet or an all meat diet helped to soothe that. And I'm thinking here is that because of what you're talking about from an intestinal permeability, that it's helping to close the junction so that it stops the body stimulating itself. Yes, this is the background of, of such recoveries. Yes, we have, we have seen this uh, many times uh, getting repeated with rheumatoid arthritis uh, patients. And, and they, they really uh, shouldn't eat anything as than animal meat, fat, <laughs> and organ meat. Because okay. anything else could hinder the, the process, the healing process, including even a small amount of coffee, for example, is, is really detrimental for the, for the joints. 
Okay, so so that was going to be my next question is that if someone maybe adopts the PKD diet for three months, six months and their symptoms resolve and they feel so much better and they think, oh, can't I just have some dairy again or can't I introduce these foods again? You would say to that patient, I no, because it actually could open up the, the, the lining in your gut again and stimulate the autoimmune response. It's not that your gut lining is closed and it's solid and it's fixed. It's that if you introduce these foods again, that it's going to stimulate that breakdown or that permeability issue again. Yes, because the, the, these barriers are uh, highly dynamic. So it, it doesn't matter uh, for how long time uh, has it been normal if, if you drink a cup of milk you uh, you screw up your intestinal permeability and will develop uh, symptoms immediately. So uh, there are there are certain food uh, items that you should never reintroduce, and these include milk and dairy, uh, cereals, and vegetable oils. These these should be excluded and avoided at all costs. Okay. And um, if if you have already recovered, there are there there you can make some allowances. For example, eating or increasing your vegetable intake, increasing the fruit intake. You can try uh, drinking coffee, but you have to keep it limited. <laughs> Yeah, the the coffee, you've got me interested in that because that always comes up, especially on the carnivore diet. People ask, what can I drink? And you would say even something like coffee is – what's what's in coffee then that you feel is uh, detrimental to someone? Uh, so coffee is, is coming from a plant, you know, okay. and uh, all, all plants are, are, are full of bioactive substances. So in, in a single plant, like coffee, there are thousands or ten thousands uh, bioactive co- compounds, and and one of this group is the, the polyphenol group, which is uh, which is being marketed <laughs> in um, by by some alternative practitioners, but actually they are they are carrying risks. Um, so it, it is difficult to say which is the component because there are so many. And it is also depending on, on the type of, of the coffee you drink. So there, there are types of coffee. For example, I, I cannot drink at all. And there are other ones. Uh, for example, that one I prepare for myself that I, I, I'm okay with if I, if I keep it limited. Okay. So, I mean, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and that's interesting that you brought up the polyphenols uh, because that is you know polyphenols are 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 mentioned as a health promoting benefit why you want to take it, but you're saying it's not always the case with those. Um, Yes, this is the case. So there are many uh, misinformation on the alternative side of of the healthcare or (laughs) health advices, and and uh, the polyphenol issue is, is is one of them. So the, the polyphenols are, uh, are aimed to counteract uh, the pro, pro-oxidant threat that is coming from the anti-oxidant, the, the, the pro-oxidant. So for example, if you are following a Western type diet and eating uh, carbohydrates, then your um, uh, the free radical production within the mitochondria will be high. Okay, this is something um, everybody knows, and uh, that's why, for example, sportsmen are, are trying to counteract with 
with uh, eating a vitamin E or vitamin C, which is regarded as antioxidant. And uh, the polyphenols are also regarded and actually are antioxidants, but they are they behave antioxidant within the test tube, you know, but not, not necessarily in your body. And the prooxidant is, is a double, these polyphenols are double-phased molecules. Some Under some conditions, they are behaving as prooxidant, and under other conditions, they are behaving as antioxidants, like the vitamin C itself. It is really a double-phased molecule. So just just uh, <laughs> eating pills um, of vitamin C and any polyphenol-containing plant uh, surely will not benefit your health. Okay, yeah. Well, that's a great one that you've introduced there about the vitamin C too because, uh, um, I mean, yeah, there's people who are mega-dosing vitamin C for health benefits. Um, and then also that's a common question that comes up on when someone's on an all-meat diet. So many people, I don't know why vitamin C, but so many people ask specifically about, but where do you get your vitamin C and will you not become vitamin C deficient? Um, and is that not the case then on a PKD diet where you're eating animal-based uh, foods that you're, you're still getting adequate levels of vitamin C and other antioxidants? Yes, this is the case. Uh, we, we published a study, uh, actually not a study, uh, a review paper in the Journal of Evolution and Health, and which uh, covered the issue of vitamin C uh, from an evolutionary, evolutionary perspective. And uh, yes, when we covered this from many aspects that are not uh, <clears throat> uh, not not frequently uh, brought up when when speaking about the vitamin C. So the vitamin C is always mentioned in the context of vitamins, fruits, or in the context of uh, supplements, saying that you cannot get enough from your food. But this is only the case if you are trying to obtain vitamin C from plant sources and not animal sources because there is a phenomenon which is called glucose ascorbate antagonism and uh, describes a phenomenon um, that uh, the glucose and the, and the ascorbate are very similar molecules and are competing for the tra same transport system within the body. So if your blood glucose level is higher or if you are eating the vitamin C in a high carbohydrate uh, context, the bioavailability of the vitamin C will be much lower. But if you are eating it from animal sources and uh, you have to really eat all the meat because uh, there is no or not much vitamin C in, in the meat and in the fat, but in the liver and in the brain, there the carbohydrate content is much lower. That's why the bioavailability is, is higher. If you are obtaining uh, even a smaller amount of vitamin C, but in a context which is better for absorption and bioavailability. So we have never seen any patient developing scurvy or symptoms that uh, should be indicating scurvy. Okay, yeah, because, I mean, that's why I wanted to get you on too because you're actually testing patients with um, laboratory tests, which everyone always asks about when uh, adopting this way of eating is, okay, but what does your blood work say? And mm -hmm. so you're actually measuring the blood work and other urine measurements and other measurements there. Would So I just, before we get more into the PKD stuff there, is that something then from a carnivore diet where people might only be eating 
meat, no organs, and just you know some fat that you do think there is a risk that they could become nutritionally deficient in certain elements? Um, yes, I do think so. I, I'm not fully uh, exclude that uh, those people who are originally healthy uh, can be doing well uh, without eating any organ meat. I, I'm, I'm not exclude this possibility at all because there is some vitamin C, for example, in the, in the meat, not that much. But this is uh, surely not the case for those patient, patients who want to recover from a given disease because they really need these nutrients to, uh, for regeneration, for tissue regeneration. This is something that uh, requires uh, vitamin D, vitamin C, and so on. Mm. And um, when it comes to organs then, you mentioned uh, brain and uh, I forgot the other one that you you, were t- you mentioned there, but uh, are there certain organs then that you prefer to get your best bang for your buck, your, like your most minerals and vitamins? Yes, these two are the, the liver and the brain. Oh, liver, that was it, yeah, sorry. Yes, the, the, the most nutritious one. So, for example, the vitamin C content, uh, of the brain can be 100 times higher than the blood level of, of the animal. Okay. So the, the, these uh, organs accumulate uh, the vitamin C and they are also getting accumulated in our own body, of course. And, and what do you think of bone broth then and bone marrow? Yeah, that's a good idea uh, to eat on a regular basis. Okay, so that so there's nutritional value coming out of those, and because a lot of people would have bone broth for intestinal permeability issues, that they're trying to heal a leaky gut by drinking mm-hmm. a bone broth. Would you say that it does help? Uh, yes, it, it is. Uh, it is part of the GAPS protocol uh, initiating phase. I, I do think so. Yes, that that's a good idea. But uh, later on, so you you cannot sustain yourself only eating bone broth because there is uh, there is no protein in it or not much no energy mm-hmm. so if, if you only drink this bone broth uh, then you will end up having energy problems and, and this is also the case with the with the children who are put on the on this gaps diet they are doing well in the very first days because they can uh, fast for a few days and, uh, and and uh, the healing process can also start within these few days. But uh, later on, they introduce other uh, things in the diet. And, and this is not the meat and the fat. But they tend to introduce uh, vegetables, fruits, supplements, and so on. So okay. you, you, if you want to start a new diet, you do not necessarily have to start with the bone broth. You can start anything is containing meat, fat, and organ meat. Okay, yeah, and that's so. It really is simple as that. It's just eat meat that's fatty and also get organs, uh, organ meats, and that there is your base for for good long term health and short term health. Is is what you're saying? Yes. Some sometimes there is a misunderstanding uh, about the amount of fat you should eat. Because carnivores usually underestimate the amount of fat they should be eating, and that's why uh, they uh, tend to eat uh, much more overall than they should. So some people eat one or two kilograms of meat uh, a day and still feel hungry or get lean, uh, losing the muscle mass. 
uh, as well. But this is because the energy uh, should be coming from either carbohydrate or the fat. And if you exclude carbohydrates but do not eat enough fat, at the same time you will end up having energy problems. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah, that's. So that is the key component where you mentioned also about the macros earlier with the PKD diet is that it's the the protein and the and the fat and because so fat is a vital component here and how much how much fat would you say um, do you have a specific ratio just in mind the the ratio uh, should be two to one two for the fat one for the protein and this goes for the trimeter content. Okay, and so what, some examples there would be like streaky bacon. Would that? Be, I'm just thinking very simple um, food sources that would be a, a good ratio um, that someone could gauge as a good source of fatty meat. Yes, but uh, uh, not only think about fatty meats, but fat itself, which I, I know is not readily available in the US. But, uh, for example, if we are speaking about uh, the, the smoked slab, it, it is something that only contains uh, fat. So, mm, or, or if, you, if you eat uh, sausage, uh, which is uh, coming from a biological source, nothing added, it is also containing the fat and the protein in the right ratio. And, and you, can eat the, 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 you can eat tallow as well, so beef dripping. You can eat the bone marrow or the brain. And how often would you then eat something like a sirloin steak or a ribeye or a rump? Uh, that's it's not that often then that you're that you're using that as your protein and fat source. Uh, actually, myself, I never eat steak <laughs> simply because uh, here in Hungary the the pork is more readily available. It is more traditional. There is, a, there is a Hungarian breed which is called Mongolica, which is extremely fatty. Um, so I, I actually live on the Mongolica pork. Okay. And, <laughs> and, and there are many, 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 many types. So, so not just the cuts can be different, but, but also there are uh, different charcuteries, including uh, head cheese or streaky bacon and uh, liver pate. So we, we have many, many. The smoked meat. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask you for some examples then for anyone listening who might want to go to their butcher and sort of ask for some cuts. Um, is because, you know, streaky bacon is just an easy thing to say because it's, it is, tends to be worldwide. But any other particular cuts of pork then that you would say to someone, you know, go ask your butcher and try it, try that out? Um, so, so there are different recipes. <laughs> to be honest, I'm not uh, uh, great with uh, with recipes or in the kitchen. <laughs> You're not I, a chef. No, <laughs> I, I I I try to keep it very simple. But uh, but but uh, again, I, I say to you, if you have uh, this this smoked slab, which is which is only containing the fat, you can use it in variable ways. So you you will not have a problem with uh, preparing um, i don't know eight different meals or, or even more if you are more creative and uh, just getting back to what you mentioned earlier about people potentially a pitfall with an all-meat diet is that they could be eating too much meat it sounded like um, because they're eating too much protein and not enough fat if 
for someone um, who I'm, I'm just trying to think of examples as a general person, so a male who might be about six foot um, and an average weight, would you say then they and, and they're not doing anything specific? You know, they're just a normal office worker or warehouse worker or something. They don't they they don't need to be aiming for the one to two kilograms of meat in a day to to stay healthy. It's it's going to be less one or less. I'm guessing. Yes. It, um, so if you if you're doing uh, if you're hitting the right ratios, then you shouldn't be eat more than. Uh, 400 grams a day. This is for an average person. And this may sound quite weird, but uh, if you try it, you will recognize that it is working. Okay. And <laughs> you basically have to eat because of uh, obtaining energy from somewhere and the energy is coming from the fat. Yeah. So you, you, you not only have to eat meats or fatty meat, but also have to eat additional fat. So I, I always tell to the patients, do not eat meat alone, always add, always put additional fat. And in this case here, yeah, what you mentioned earlier about dairy, don't be adding butter on your steak for the fat source. You'd yeah. rather get more animal fat, so more marbling, more natural fat from the, from the animal itself to get the, the fat source on your meat. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's, it's better not to add butter. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I, I know some patients are using the butter because it is more readily available than than uh, than clear fat without any additives. Because they used to contain nitrates, nitrates, and so on. And so, even on that four hundred grams of uh, food in a day, you're not concerned about any muscle mass loss, like the body wasting. No, if you are not doing. Um, over average uh, workout, then 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 it is okay. If you are doing more more uh, workout, more exercise, you have to increase the amount of food what you mm. are eating. Or or if you are uh, using your brain <laughs> over over the average level, then then this is something which also uh, needs to support with additional calories. And in the calories in that case, you'd prefer to have more fat potentially versus just eating more meat. Uh, the ratio can be the same. Okay. Just increase. Yeah. Okay. So, so if you're a PhD re researcher and you're really use, using your brain a lot, so you just might need to eat more, more pork, yes. more fatty pork. Yes. I can get very hungry <laughs> when I work. <laughs> Um, and what are your thoughts then also on salt and salting food? Do you believe that's an important important component to um, longevity on this diet too? So uh, the, the, uh, the, the salt and specifically sodium is something you need or uh, need to eat in a, in a higher amount if you are uh, following a, a carbohydrate-based diet because uh, there is this uh, channel which is called sodium-dependent uh, glucose channel, which, which means that you can use the glucose uh, with, the, with the help of the sodium. So sodium has to be present, this channel to be in function. But if you decrease the carbohydrate uh, in your diet and in your blood, the, the glucose, much less salt is needed. Okay. So that, that's why some people can uh, can go quite well without uh, uh, eating additional additional salt. 
But if you would like to, you can use additional salt because your kidney just excreting the additional salt without any problem. Myself, I use salt. Because mm. I was just thinking too, you know, when someone typically goes from a typical um, standard Western diet and they adopt a low-carbohydrate diet or go onto an all-meat diet, they they go through that keto adapt adaptation process, um, and so the body is is dumping more sodium. Uh, and I was just thinking, even on a PKD PKD diet, then. Um, are you dealing with the same situation of that keto adaptation and people needing to up their salt intake or their other electrolyte intake just to help them through that transition phase? Uh, yes, but this is uh, again a misunderstanding. So this uh, loss of minerals uh, goes for the classical ketogenic diet and not for the periodic ketogenic diet because it is uh, providing all the all the minerals. Uh, that you need and in a more bioavailable form. So if you had magnesium deficiency before, your magnesium level will normalize by starting to eat uh, meat, fat and organ meat. So you do not have to supplement it. And of course, there are other um, there are side effects which are transitory and uh, these, uh, these, goes, these go with the, the change in the metabolism. So shifting uh, away from the carbohydrate metabolism and um, adopting a fat-based metabolism because all your enzymes have to adapt, your mitochondria have to adapt. And while you are in the transition period, you you might be deprived of energy, for example. And that's why people have uh, may have headache or or feeling low energy level or diarrhea. These three are the most frequent side effects. Yeah, I was going to ask you, uh, um, coming on to the, the bowel health then, because we, we talked about it a little um, already earlier, but another common question that I do see sometimes that people say, oh, when I've adopted an all-meat diet, I either have diarrhea or I have constipation. Um, do you have any sort of problem-solving tips for someone who is dealing with that, that that maybe they aren't eating enough fat or eating too much fat or they're not eating enough organ meat or something, would you say, for what's so, going on so in those di cases? Diarrhea is a, is a uh, transition phenomenon. And uh, if, it, if the patients still have diarrhea later on, it is, it is just a feedback that that uh, patient is eating too much, uh, too much meat as compared to uh, fat. So this is, so in this case, uh, not the fat is the culprit, but the meat. <laughs> and this is also going against the common perception of, of the diarrhea in such cases. Yeah, I would expect more the fat is causing the diarrhea, not the, the meat. Yeah. But you're saying it's more the meat, not the fat. Actually, the excess protein. Okay. Because uh, this ties into um, with one of the studies that you published was the Crohn's study, which I found fascinating. Um, I, I tried to find the picture of it, of that boy who was a case example where he was so gaunt, you know, and, and white because he was so pale and he just looked so sickly. And then the picture of him afterwards, after you know, adopting the PKD diet, was that he looked so healthy again. And so you think someone who's got a compromised uh, gut lining from an inflammatory condition called Crohn's, but yet putting them on fat and meat actually healed their gut and stopped the severity of the Crohn's. Um, yes, this is the way to go. 
Uh, actually, that patient was not the one in the publication, another one, but actually we have many um, recovered Crohn's patients. And yeah, this is the way to go. Um, but uh, there is another side of the story, and it uh, goes for the medication the patient uh, has been taking uh, previously, and uh, this should be managed. And, and it is not, not easy. This is something the patient uh, shouldn't do uh, by herself or himself because doesn't know the, uh, the dynamics. Or, and, and actually, most physicians uh, do not either know uh, the dynamics. They, they are very good at uh, adding medicines to, to Crohn's patients, but they are very bad at uh, tapering the medicines. And, 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 and tapering any medicine is, is more risky, risky than adding a new medicine. So um, this is this is something I, 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 I um, encourage uh, to be done under the surveillance of a, of a physician who is um, experienced with tapering or the medicine or having clinical experience and also experience with, with the effect of the diet. Mm -hmm. Because the, the two has to be uh, in, in parallel with each other. And have you ever come across a situation then where people who might have irritable bowel, irritable bowel syndrome, um, they might complain that, oh, when I eat meat, that it irritates my bowel. Um, do you, is that a, a sort of any cases, have you come across that in practice? Uh, yes, I, I've, uh, I often hear this claim. But actually, this is, uh, uh, you know, sometimes a patient doesn't uh, just doesn't eat uh, high quality meat so for example uh, he's he's saying i am i'm only eating chicken and egg and i'm doing a pkd but actually this is not a pkd so there are there are small nuances and, and not to speak of, of the fact that uh, maybe a patient run into a sausage that is containing uh, glucose and additives and uh, these substances even in a very small amount uh, can maintain the intestinal permeability, and in this case, he his permeability will not normalize. So, this is something uh, like a, a quantity reaction, which means that um, only a very small amount of bad thing is enough to hinder the, the recovery of the intestine, and and you do not have to eat large amounts of bread or milk or something. Just just a very small amount of something. Just maybe, maybe it can be a, a type of seasoning you, you use for a, for a meat, and and this hinders the, the recovery process. Okay, so, so you there are, there are many nuances, or or taking taking a supplement, for example, taking vitamin C can completely disrupt the regeneration process. Okay, so that's interesting. So in that case, someone who does report getting IBS symptoms from eating meat, the qu the question needs to be what kind of meat are you taking supplements um, to delve deeper into that and then maybe look at giving them a base level of fatty meats like you mentioned earlier to rather put them on that and then they won't experience the symptoms. Yes, you know, the, the, the devil is in the details sometimes. Mm -hmm. But there are some cases uh, indeed where... Uh, Protein from the red meat yeah, can uh, maintain uh, autoimmunity. This is very, this is something very rare. But uh, in this case, the solution also is to eat 
uh, a diet based on animal meat and fat and exclude anything else. And once the intestinal permeability normalizes, he will not longer react to uh, the red meat. Okay, so so there is a case where some people could react more heavily to red meat. Yes, but it it is uh, it is rather an exception rather than a rule. Okay, <laughs> so cool. Yeah. And so the the fiber um, sort of debate that some people would have where they go, but how you know how do you have normal bowel movements uh, because you're not getting enough fiber? Uh, how do you sort of answer to that one? So the the fiber is is something your body is not able to use absorb in any way. So you actually you do not need the fiber, and and this uh, this is coming from the the, the standard view of of uh, functioning of the body that that you need to eat fiber. So if you only eat meat, uh, fat, and organ meat, you will have uh, bowel movements. Uh, much less frequently, and the the amount of stool will be smaller. But this is just something very normal. It, it, it is not uh, not healthier in any way to have more stools than to have less stools. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is nonsense. And and what I mentioned earlier about the constipation, because I have seen some people say that that they get constipated, is that because they're not having enough fat with their meat or not enough water? Um, how what do you think is going on there? So uh, constipation uh, is in some cases uh, a misunderstanding uh, of of requiring stool every day. So you do not have to have stool every day. So our patients usually have stool, um, let's say, only once in four days or once in ten days. It is not extraordinary. It may sound weird and uh, quite difficult to accept because... There are positive associations uh, attached to having bowel movements regularly or every morning. Or so, qu- quite many people are fixated to this issue. But you really do not have to have a stool every day. Okay, this, that- this is one thing, and the other thing is that um, if you are eating milk and dairy, this is something that will give you real constipation. Ah, okay. So it could be the either the dairy is contributing to the constipation, or just that you're expecting to have a bowel movement to go to the toilet, you know, at least every day. And that's fascinating that you said that you've seen patients who might it it's actually normal for them, and it's healthy for their bowel to only go go maybe once every ten days. Yes, yes, this is the case. <laughs> okay, because yeah, I I think you know some people. Would, are concerned then when they with eating meat. Of course, there was the the debate. Oh, but doesn't meat contribute to bowel cancer? Um, or I'm guessing some people would think not. Is it maybe that it contributes to um, cancer in the bowel by less frequent bowel movements? Maybe, but um, we're saying that's not the case. No. no, this this has nothing to do with the frequency of bowel movement. Uh... It has something to do with the additives in, in, in processed foods. And actually, the, the colorectal cancer has been related to uh, the consumption of uh, processed food. So using uh, additives, for example, um, nitrates, nitrites are, are really uh, something that are boosting cancer. But there are many other additives. 
in innumerable ones that right. may contribute to a cancer, but but not the red meat itself. Okay, because yeah, that's what people think. No, but I need fiber to clean my bowel to like brush it, and and yeah, I'm just using that analogy there because someone did say that in one of the comments on the YouTube video that it's like brushing the bowel and cleaning it, and that's getting rid of any cancerous cells. But that's not the way that prevention of cancer of the bowel is happening. Mm-hmm. Yes, but you do not have to think specifically about your bowel movement. <laughs> just. <laughs> just just let it go (laughs) okay yeah because yeah it's it's definitely it's i i was speaking with the dietitian over the weekend and mentioning about the all meat diets and just i've you know been interviewing people about it and her first question too was but what about bowel health you know it's always one of the first questions i come across when people when mentioning to people it seems to be the the first thing that comes to mind is but what happens to your bowels what happens to your toilet habit so uh, i think you've definitely answered a lot of that already there um so when it comes to also the ketogenic side of things are you measuring ketone bodies in patients like the beta hydroxybutyrates or taking acetone breath um is that an important factor for you that you actually want to see someone achieving certain levels of ketones in their system yes measuring blood glucose and blood ketones at the same time is is a very useful feedback for us and and for the patient as well. So the patients either are measuring uh, these factors uh, at, uh, at home settings, or if they are uh, with us, we we are having a, a week-long retreat every month where we spend time together with the patients while supervising uh, them as well. And, and on these occasions, we used to measure blood glucose and blood ketones. And, and this is, these two, along with uh, their weight, changing weight and blood pressure, are are are, are showing the way. So it, it is a it is a good feedback, and also a way of controlling patients. You know, because some patients uh, go out and eat an apple, but when they come back, their blood they will be out of ketosis. So it is a way of controlling them, and also a way of of part of the learning process for the patient as well. So to learn how much he should eat, how many times he should eat, the the fat-to-protein ratio. And and later on, once they already learned um, the the process, they they do not have to measure it on on a daily basis. Okay. Because it becomes automatic. And is this then another problem maybe with the carnivore diet if someone's not eating meat that's fatty enough that they won't be stimulating that ketosis situation Um, because that's something where people go no but if you eat meat then it it halts the ketone body production Um, but is it that you're saying you need to have the fatty cuts of meat too and that's what patients are learning and then but they they still will achieve a level of nutritional ketosis that, that way so actually, there is a there is an optimal range of ketosis that that should be reached, and um, it, it it is just about the fine tuning. And uh, do you do you find that you want to put people in a cyclical ketosis, or do you want them to always be in a level of ketosis every day? Um, preferably the same level or similar level of ketosis. Yeah. Okay, so so, so, so the ketogenic diet um, makes no sense. 
um, from the patient's perspective because right. it implies eating carbohydrates on a regular basis, but we do not suggest eating carbohydrates. Yeah, and I can. So, what I'm understanding too, that comes back to what you mentioned earlier about the intestinal permeability. So, one of the key elements that you're doing with the PKD is that you're trying to heal the bowel and you don't want to then put you back on a cyclical diet, which then introduces foods that could irritate the bowel, which stimulates the process again. And then you have to start the healing process again of the bowel. And that's why you always want to stay um, on the PKD to sort of as a baseline, keep your bowel health well. Yes, because uh, if there is a derailment in the diet, it is always associated with, uh, with having the, the same symptoms. Uh, for example, if you are a rheumatoid arthritis patient and if you, if you cheat or, or unintentionally eat something that is outside the system, uh, you will get back the joint pain and, and, it, it, it is regulating you because you do not have to you have to have the, the, the pain again or a Crohn's disease patient do not have want to have the the, the cramps again but uh, I have to tell you that uh, patients try it from time to time <laughs> but uh, when they are faced to the consequences they they choose not to not to cheat and this is not necessarily the case for the diabetes patient because if you have a uh, a blood glucose level higher than six, seven, or eight, you will not feel anything. <laughs> so it is more difficult with the diabetes patients. Yeah, unless they're measuring and they can see, oh dear, yeah, my my glucose is actually going out of control when I'm I've cheated. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, and so I, I was just thinking the cramp. You brought up the cramps there because that's that's something else that some people um, do say happens to them when they adopt a ketogenic diet is that they get especially calf cramps. Um, what do you think is happening in that situation? Um, there's a, a magnesium deficiency behind and uh, this can be a temporary magnesium deficiency as well, so not just a global magnesium deficiency. We as well published a study uh, on this aspect and we have showed, we ret retrospectively reviewed the, the last 50 patients who have been following the PKD and uh, uh, based on laboratory measurements, they have been in ketosis and following uh, the, the diet uh, to a high degree and, and actually all of them had a, a normal magnesium level. Okay. And, and said that they didn't have uh, leg cramps or, or cramps in any other muscles. But all of them are, are saying, and uh, you can experience it uh, yourself, that if you are eating uh, a larger amount of fruit, you can easily run into the leg, into leg cramps or leg cramps uh, uh, during the night. If this, is, this is something very specific. But if you stop eating fructose, uh, and eat uh, meat and fat, uh, you, you will not have the problem again. So the, the lacrams seem to be related to this relative magnesium deficiency. Um, and and, and uh, we have seen that, um, so, so according to this study, uh, everybody who had been uh, in ketosis and following uh, the PKD had a normal uh, magnesium level. And the uh, explanation is uh, in a, in a certain shift between the intracellular and extracellular phase, uh, space, 
shift of the magnesium because if you are eating uh, uh, a carbohydrate, uh, if you are it, eating a carbohydrate-based diet, uh, then there are quite many there are quite many enzymes involved that are using the magnesium as a cofactor uh, to function properly. And uh, if there is a large amount of carbohydrate, these enzymes use the magnesium. They bind the magnesium. And, and that's why the, the magnesium, will, magnesium level will decrease in the extracellular phase space and you may run into like cramps. But this has nothing to do with the absolute amount of magnesium within your body, magnesium in your food. Because I, I, I often, I'm often asked uh, the question why why to uh, suggest a diet which is low in magnesium but actually uh, this diet so it, it is not only the absolute magnesium content what counts but the context the whole dietary context and if there is not much carbohydrate in your diet that small amount of magnesium will be enough you to function properly and so even when people go more on a low carbohydrate diet or a ketogenic diet who suffer leg cramps is it that i'm just thinking here that they're not getting enough natural source of magnesium from what they're eating uh, yes it can be the case in these cases because the magnesium is primarily coming from the organ meat the, the liver for example and and those patients who are saying that i'm following Paleolithic ketogenic diet and are in ketosis and, and almost everything is okay but are having a low magnesium level, it is an indication that they are not eating uh, enough organ meat. Okay. And or not eating enough organ meat but doing a heavy exercise workout. So the combination of these two is also something depleting the magnesium stores. So I'm just thinking here, a quick fix that someone, if they get that sign that they're getting leg cramps, they need to go out to the butcher and get some liver and start having that for dinner that night and breakfast maybe, and that will start helping the situation. Yes, it, it will help in, in a short space of time. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Um, so I, I also wanted to ask you then, you mentioned about type 1 diabetes earlier and uh, the the effect that that intestinal permeability has then on the pancreas. Is that, is that because you've, um, you've published some interesting papers about type 1 diabetic management using PKD and especially in children and I'm, I'd just be fascinated to, to sort of hear your thoughts as to why you think someone who is depending on insulin, a type 1 diabetic, can get so much better eating a, um, eating a high fatty meat diet. Um, so... If you are eating a diet which is containing much less carbohydrate, then your insulin need can also be lowered. And, and this goes for any low-carb diet. We, we can see many or hear about many success stories in, uh, from within the low-carb communities in Facebook and so on. Uh, but, but some people are, are too much uh, fixating on, on having a a low blood glucose level, but not on the other side of the story, is that is uh, normalizing the autoimmune process in the background. So when uh, when children are diagnosed with type one diabetes, 
at, at the time of the diagnosis, they usually have some residual amount of insulin. They are already having the symptoms of having hyperglycemia, for example, but still have, let's say, 50% of their original insulin production. So it is not zero. And uh, the, if this uh, patient or child is put on the periodic ketogenic diet, uh, there is a chance to reverse the process and to live uh, without external insulin in, in most of the cases. But uh, if we are speaking about uh, somebody who has been diagnosed uh, diagnosed much earlier, uh, years ago, there, then the possibility to normalize the process and to get back those insulin-producing cells that, that are already dead, so the, the probability is very small. So then these, these patients cannot live without uh, insulin anymore, external insulin anymore. Yeah, so that's I just found that amazing. So if, if there's any parents listening to this and their child has just been diagnosed with type one diabetes, you um, as you said, their 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 body, their pancreas is still producing a small amount of insulin, but they're getting the symptoms. But there's a potential here that if they put them on the Paleolithic ketogenic diet, that you're advocating that you that that child could actually not end up in a situation where they're having to inject insulin for the rest of their lives. Yes, but 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 this is something very very delicate. Yeah. So you have you have to do it uh, right from the very beginning, um, uh, possibly not uh, later than than uh, six months uh, within within the diagnosis onset, and and have to be very very strict uh, with the diet. So there is no possibility for cheating, which may not be the case uh, for other autoimmune diseases because if you have uh, rheumatoid arthritis. And you cheat, you will get uh, the the negative symptoms, and then you go back to a diet, and you can uh, live your life uh, without any symptoms. You you can go on and off the diet uh, without any further consequences. But but this is not the case with type one diabetes, where only one occasion of cheating uh, may be enough to ruin the remaining uh, beta cells within the pancreas. And, and this is something very difficult to accept, uh, especially for the parents. <laughs> they they are always looking for uh, some allowances, and 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 they they seem this possibility very hard to maintain for the whole life of the of the child. So actually, we only have a very very few number of type one diabetes uh, children who. Who are without insulin, but uh, only because of this uh, psychological difficulty, and not because of the diet is not working. So far, the the diet is is maintained. They can uh, remain without insulin, but this only goes for I I I cannot <laughs> emphasize this uh, enough that this only goes for new onset type one diabetes, not for uh, long standing type one diabetes. So you shouldn't. Try it at home <laughs> if you are listening. This podcast is a type on diabetic, and and it is it, it is always the best to ask for uh, for professional advice and and not uh, gathering information from a Facebook group <laughs> which is full of laymen because they they can be helpful but their advice may not be helpful. 
Yeah, I think most type 1 diabetics definitely are very conscious of that, hopefully. And as you said, any adults listening to this who are type 1 diabetic, uh, don't try this at home. Definitely <laughs> consult someone first. Yes. Um, have you then had any type 1 diabetics um, who've been type 1 for a long period of time and they wear the continuous glucose meters? Um, just seeing what hap- what what is their sort of what does their glucose do or their in their blood do when they eat a, a fatty meaty meal does do you get any spikes in in that case do you see anything there no usually usually there are no spikes you you, you cannot uh, judge from seeing the curve where, where the meal took place sometimes the blood glucose uh, decreases after a meal but, but usually the, the blood glucose is very stable and if not, it is indicating uh, some uh, diet adherence problems and may also indicate uh, improper fat-to-protein ratio. So, so to say eating more protein and less fat than needed, then you can see these uh, fluctuations in the curve, even without eating any carbohydrates. And so it, you would say too then this approach is, is suitable for type 2 diabetics who maybe someone who's just been di- di- diagnosed with type 2 diabetes that this is a good approach then to try help um, help their body heal. Yes, it, it is also good for type 2 diabetes but I, I think it is not uh, very surprising because the, the blood glucose level can be controlled with the classical ketogenic diet as well as the paleolithic diet itself so there are benefits and and glucose control can be achieved uh, by any low-carb diet um, to be honest mm-hmm. <laughs> so this is not specifically related to the to the pkd you may have lower blood glucose level but you can achieve glucose control with other low-carb diets the the, the important benefit which comes uh, with the pkd is that uh, you can control your inflammation level as well, which cannot be said for the either for the paleolithic or the classical ketogenic diet. And it is crucial if you want to prevent further complications of diabetes, because diabetes is not only a disease of having high blood sugar levels. You can easily uh, get it lower with a diet or with medication. It's not a problem. Uh, the problem is to prevent the long-term complications, heart disease, kidney disease, uh, neuropathy, and so on, which always come time. Mm-hmm. And so are you actively measuring anything specific when it comes to inflammatory markers in, in patients, uh, like C-reactive protein in their blood or any, anything other specific? Yes, we, we do measure at least three inflammation, inflammatory factors, the CRP, the ESR, and the fibrinogen. And, and the combination of the three will give a few a full picture of the inflammatory state because the dynamics of all three parameters is a little bit different, but uh, the, the three at the same time will give you a few picture. And sometimes we are measuring uh, the so-called deep inflammatory marker, which is interleukin-6. And uh, uh, tumor and necrosis factor alpha. This is another one. Okay, and you've seen an, a, a positive correlation then that when someone adopts this way of eating, that those markers normalize or or drop um, yes. in, in those Definitely. patients. This is what we see. 
And if, if there is there is no decrease, then there is uh, some problem with the diet, usually with the diet. And so, when I'm just thinking, when someone comes to the to the the clinic, uh, which you said happens once a week uh, every month, is it? Uh, one week every month. Yeah. Yes. Um, so when they 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 come in there, um, so the treatment really is just food. Here, we're just talking about the fat, the and and the protein and the organ meat. There's no other supplements or medicines or anything else that's happening here to try assist that person it literally is these are the ingredients for all of these things that we've been discussing today uh yes but uh, we also pay attention to educate the patient about uh, dietary aspects so if a patient is coming from western type diet uh, usually they do not know anything about outside the, the mainstream um, nutrition so everything is new to him and, and and this is a learning process that uh, that uh, needs time. So they they are they get uh, meals according to the PKD rules, and they themselves experience uh, the effects. They experience what they are going through. Uh, we are organizing groups of patients so they can uh, share uh, experience. So, and this is uh, something contributing to their uh, to their learning, and and we also discuss. Uh, yes, we have to manage their uh, medications because obviously, if we have a type one diabetes patient who is on insulin, and you uh, give another type of food, you have to do something with his or her insulin. Otherwise, the blood glucose level will go uh, will go too low, and this is uh, giving rise to the so-called hypoglycemia and and there is this problem associated with actually every other medicines for example blood pressure medication steroid medication so you you have to manage the existing uh, medicines and give advice for those medicines that cannot be tapered within such a short period of time and, and you have also give uh, or set up a plan how to control the disease for for um, for the future, because if if you have a cancer patient, then it, it doesn't go from one day to another. They they really need a, a plan for the future. What other diagnostic tools, diagnostics he should choose, or what what other treatments he should choose or not to choose? Chemotherapy, radiotherapy, and so on. Okay. But these treatments do not always synergize. Yeah. And also then, um, do you go into fasting at these retreats? I mean, is that just a, a natural cycle that happens um, that you don't eat so often during the day that you sort of follow the circadian biology thought of time-restricted feeding that you naturally eat in a smaller window in a day? No, we never impose fasting uh, to patients. We have to uh, nourish the patients instead of fast them. And uh, usually we have two meals a day, but this by no means uh, means uh, fasting. It is just a normal cycle because if you eat uh, animal meat fat based, that will give you a long lasting energy and you will not be hungry earlier than in the evening. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is not a fasting, this is just uh, a normal 
frequency of the meals. Yeah. Okay. So you don't you don't sort of focus on trying to do some sort of fasting then to to also no, assist yeah. them in these retreats. No. On the contrary, we are we are actually against fasting in diseased patients. Okay. So you're trying to feed them more rather than trying to fast them. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. I, Sophia, I think we've covered so many topics today. I know I've, I've really delved into your brain here and asked you so many questions. But again, you know, you're, you're clinically applying this diet to a multitude of conditions and and situations, which is and you've and you've published research around it too, which I find fascinating. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing all of that information. Um, I've tried to ask as many questions as I think people listening will have if they had a chance to ask you a question too, uh, especially adopting this way of eating, but. I just want to ask then, um, finally, with the with the the clinic that you run in Hungary, is that only for patients who have an existing condition, or if if someone listening to this and they're able to get to, um, I believe you're you're based in Budapest in Hungary, um, if they wanted to come, no, the, the clinic is uh, is outside the city, so it's a little bit further. Okay, <laughs> it's in Hungary. Yeah, so if they wanted so if, if they wanted to come and just sort of spend a week and learn the diet and learn the, the protocols, is that an option for people or do you only accept patients who actually have a condition that they're trying to control? Yes, we actually receiving patients that are or that already have a, a pre existing condition because uh, otherwise it, it would not be ethical with, with those patients to 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 be in in the company of those uh, who are not having the disease so it it is just for ethical reasons so if someone wanted to learn more about adopting this way of eating how would they actually learn if they because they wouldn't be able to then come to the clinic um so they can consult with us so we are providing uh, individual consultations uh, through in the internet through Skype so if if uh, they uh, would like to we can uh, we can provide uh, advice okay. without having a disease okay fantastic okay so the the online consults is one way that someone listening anywhere in the world could then contact you yeah. and be able to contact us yeah okay so uh that's a good link into now what are the links or the the online links that you would recommend for people then to be able to contact you and follow you uh, the paleomedicina.com and then you will be able to find uh, any other things that are related to our activity. So the scientific articles, there are articles uh, which are uh, written for laymen and um, the details for the medical consultations as well. So this is the major page. Okay, perfect. And I'll link to that in the show notes on the description for everyone. Um, again, thank you so much for your time and for sharing all your um, knowledge. Um, I've, I've found it so fascinating and I'm sure so many people listening to this will do too. Thank you very much for having me. 